Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Let me share this poem with you. I wanted to put it in the context of my message, but in light of our prayer, let me share it with you now, and I pray it would be an encouragement to you, Andrea, and also to you, Bob, particularly. Um, it's entitled, My Case for Healing A-1. It's sort of like in a court presentation, A-1. So here's her poem. I will touch the fringes of your garment and I will be healed. This won't be done in secret. It soon will be revealed. For I will tell your praises to anyone that asks and advertise your wonders in the morning and the night. For you are God and there is no other. Whatever you say is rife because you have the words of hope and speak the words of life. My Lord, you have placed your word even above your name. I do hereby in writing forthwith to you submit my claim. In layman's terms, I present the court exhibit A-1. My first claim is your own promise that it's already done. And by it, I clarify, I speak about my healing in direct response to my adversary's claim who tried to set me reeling, using guise and fear to intimidate and influence the way I am feeling. In Exhibit A-1, it was Isaiah who claimed that it was done. I submit to you Isaiah 53 to be entered in its entirety. But to narrow it, da- to narrow it down to a single spiel, it stated, it is by his stripes we are healed. The prosecutor would like this evidence thrown out, but your honor knows this is impossible. There are thousands of years of precedence, although challenged every single time. So if it please the court... I will continue. He grew up before you like a tender root out of the dry ground. There was nothing seemingly attractive about him that anyone would take special notice of. But later, as his true identity became evident, he was put to the test. And I will loosely quote Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we turned away our faces from him. He was despised, and we didn't hold him in high regard. Certainly he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we came to the wrong conclusion that he was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. There it is, you have it, past tense, present tense, future tense, however you want it, my case, healed. 
May I remind the court that this document was written around 700 years before his crucifixion and resurrection took place. And further, at that time of those events, every word of this prophecy was fulfilled to the letter. That is a proven fact. It is an insult to this court's integrity that my adversary still has the gall to try and bring his identity into question. So this sums up my introduction, Your Honor. In my case for healing, I intend to prove my innocence by definition. Since the court is adjourning now, I will thank you, Your Honor, until we meet again at the court's next session. Wow. Oh, my goodness. What's that? Not guilty. Not guilty. There you go. A superior judge. Not guilty. He knows. Is that not like, Wow. You know, that's amazing. It's beautiful and it is so enriching. And what an encouragement, you know, what an encouragement. We all need that kind of encouragement because we all face disappointments. We all face hurts. We all face trials and challenges of all kinds. The scripture tells us that, but we don't need the scripture to tell us that. We know that by experience, don't we? And when we face those challenges, well, that is a whole nother, a whole nother matter. How do we face them? What is the result that comes out of it and in our lives. I believe that there is probably no greater lesson or skill that we can acquire than to be ones that can endure suffering and pain and do so as unto the Lord. I don't think there's any greater skill a person can acquire. I don't think there's any greater need than a person can have than to be able to withstand the onslaught of the challenges that face us and still remain standing, as it were, and standing because of the grace of God and standing to the glory of God. I suppose if we think about our lives and if we were to ask ourselves, what do we want most out of our lives? I think that the things we really would want most would be that we would like to know ourselves, just who we are, what kind of persons we have become. In order to know who you are, you have to go through trials and testings. Because you really don't know what your strengths or weaknesses are until you've been challenged on both scores. And so if you really want to know who you are, you can only know that through the crucible of challenges and heartaches that come into your life. Then you'll see truly how strong you are. Then you'll see truly how weak we are and the great needs that we have. I would think that if we asked ourselves, what do we really want out of life? I think, and as we recite every, every week, that we would love our neighbor as ourself. There is no greater character trait a person can acquire, I don't think, than to think about others before themselves. In fact, Paul says this in the book of Philippians, right? He says, consider others greater than yourselves. Yeshua tells us the second commandment, like the greatest of all commandments, is to love your neighbor as yourself. But you know, you can't love your neighbor as yourself until you've gone through a time of testing and trial. How do you learn to empathize with other people's needs? How do you learn to sympathize with other people's hurts unless you've been hurt yourself? Unless you have struggled in some capacity in your own life? So if you want to be a person that knows yourself, you need to go through trials. If you want to be a person who can really care about others and make a difference in other people's lives, well, then you have to go 
through trials in our own life. So trials are critical to becoming the kinds of persons God would have us to be. And this is why he speaks the scripture. God speaks to us in the scripture and speaks about trials and heartaches and all kinds of disappointments as a refining fire. As a fire, it can destroy us. But as a refining fire, it can make us different than when we first entered the fire, than when we first entered the trial. We can come out very different than the way we went in. It's not unlike gold and silver. I meant to read up on this, but I wondered, and maybe there are some metallurgists. is that how you pronounce it? Is that right? People that work with metal, <laughs> you know, metallurgists. Oh, no, metallurgists. Metal, metallurgists? It's not like epitome. Oh, epitome. Epitome. <laughs> metallurgists. It sounds more like a disease. A metallurgist, you know. So, in a refining fire, and I meant to look this up, what the heat level must be in order for the dross, dross, not dross, dross, to be purged out of gold and silver. But it must be pretty hot. Because I understand that, I know this much, that gold will not be destroyed. It'll melt but fire can never destroy the gold itself. I guess God can create a fire that could. I don't doubt that. But what we know about metal, like gold and silver, is that the fire doesn't destroy the metal, but it destroys the dross that is attached to the metals and therefore makes it most refined, most pure, and most clean. So when you think of the kind of heat that must take care of that, well, then what kind of heat do we need to experience in our own lives in order to deal with the kinds of dross that we exhibit or that we possess? So dealing with hurts and disappointments is an important issue that we need to face. Last week when I spoke about this, I said that there are certain non-negotiables to remember. I said that, first of all, we need to remember that suffering is inevitable because we live in a world that's fallen. I mentioned that because of God's work in the world and in our lives, because he always works for us. I thought that was quite stunning in Scripture that over and over again, even after God creates the universe, he doesn't just leave it to operate on the laws that he has established, although he could. But we are not deists that believe that somehow God created the world, wound it up with all of its laws, and then distanced himself from the world that he created, the universe that he created, to operate on the laws that he has made without his own intervention or involvement. So we don't believe that. We believe that God is intimately engaged in the world that he has made. He's transcended from it. He's distant from it. He's apart from it. We're not pantheists that believe everything is God, but we are ones that believe God has created the universe and it is distinct from him. But we also believe that God is intimately connected with it. And so in Colossians, Paul tells us that by Yeshua, all things are held together. 
The mystery of the universe is how it is that the atoms and protons and all the new kinds of things that they have discovered continue to be attracted to one another and hold together. We know from Colossians it's because of God's activity, Messiah's activity in holding it all and keeping it all together and operating it, operating as he had intended. And what's even more amazing is that not only is he just making sure everything continues to operate as he indicate or as he intended, but he's also engaged in your particular life. There's not a hair of your head that falls out. Some of us have had meant more than others that he's not aware of. There's not a bird that falls from its nest that God is not aware of. There is not a snowflake that hits this planet that he does not know the intricacies about each one. And while they're all different, he knows that. He's crafted that. He's made it as such. The things that we take for granted and consider insignificant, God is intimately connected to and is gravely concerned about. And therefore, Yeshua can say, take no thought of your life, what you will wear, what you will put on, because you are more important to God than anything else he has made in all of the universe. And therefore, he will take care of you. And when we go through times of trials, God has purpose for it. We may not see that purpose. We may not see it clearly. We may not even see it at all in this world. But when we come before him, it will all be clarified. And it will make sense then, if it doesn't make sense now. Graciously, there are some things that do make sense. And God does let us in on what he's up to. But there are many things about which we're not so certain. We know that God is with us in and through and alongside of and every way possible connected to us in our suffering. We know he empathizes with us. The writer to the Hebrews says that he hears our cries. And we're told in the book of Romans that the Spirit of God utters requests for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. They know he knows all about what is happening inside, outside, and swirling around and is fully in control. And therefore, God can be trusted. Today, what I want to share with you are certain realities about suffering that we need, I would say, to embrace. Although we don't like embracing these things, I think if we embrace them, we will find relief on the other side. First of all, it is true that suffering can overwhelm us. This is an interesting passage. After the Lord calls Moses to deliver the people out of Egypt, and Moses is resistant to the calling, but eventually goes. He, re he comes to the people. He tells them that God is going to deliver them. He makes reference to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh makes the lives of the Israelites even more difficult than they once were before Moses got there. And Moses cries out to the Lord, Why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. 
What is Moses saying? The people are overwhelmed by their heartache and by their struggle. I was called, I thought you called me to deliver the people. You said you were going to use me to bring them out of Egypt, but ever since I've gotten there, things have gotten more difficult. And so Moses cries out, what is going on? Because it's overwhelming. Have you ever felt in your life that a trial has just been overwhelming? <laughs> you know, what the heck is going on? It doesn't end there, though. Be nice. Moses would have liked that. But, you know, the whole rest of his life is the same issues. Because when he brings the children of Israel, the people of Israel, out of Egypt, the challenges don't stop. In fact, they get worse. It was bad enough that Pharaoh would become a taskmaster over them, but God leading them into the wilderness, and we can't find water. We can't find food. We can't get out of the heat. We can't get out of the frigid cold. Why are you taking us into this hard place? This rocky place, I don't know if you've ever visited the southern portion of the Sinai. I've had opportunity to do that. And it is just one massive mountain after another. There are passes you can go through, but it is not easy terrain to make yourself through. And you've got millions of people. you got a bunch of kids. Can you imagine that? A bunch of kids out in the desert running helter-skelter, you know? Where are you guys going? Get back here, you know? I mean, that's enough aggravation. But even later, Moses cries out to the Lord again when they start clamoring for all this stuff. And then, of course, they hit him with the big one, and that is, back in Egypt, we had leeks. We don't even have leeks out here. You know, we had onions back there. Well, we can't even find them out here in the wilderness. And Moses cries out to the Lord. You know, Moses is like 80 years old. He's walked with God in the desert for 40 years. He has seen God take him through certain challenges. And now as an 80-year-old who's known God for a few decades, maybe more, I don't know at what point he really has that relationship all intact. But here he is at 80. And you'd think, doesn't the guy deserve a little bit of a break? But he doesn't. It's ongoing, even to the point where there's so many concerns that are being brought to him. It's his father-in-law that says, you better delegate some of this stuff out because you can't bear all of this. Even his own family are uh, rebel against him because he marries someone they don't like. And even the people that he's rescued, and he says, what, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. I mean, that is incredible to think of. The Israelites are ready to rebel against him, to kill him, and to get rid of him. The pain and pressure was overwhelming for Moses. You know, it strikes me like in the book of Job, you can't think about pain and suffering without going to the book of Job somewhere. But one of the things that is depicted in the book of Job to speak of the overwhelming onslaught of challenges and loss that Job experienced is found in chapter 1. And if you 
Read, for example, I'll just read it for you in verse 13. It says, One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing, the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And then here's the thing in verse 16. While he was still speaking... Another messenger comes. The fire of God fell from the sky, burned up the sheep, the servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, swept down on your camels, carried them off. They put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking while at the older brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them and they're dead and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Just relentless pursuit of heartache. So suffering can, in fact, overwhelm us. And sometimes... Suffering just seems utterly unfair. You know, Gideon, interesting character in the scripture. When the Israelites come into the land under Joshua and they take the land, then when you get to the book of Judges, it is without a doubt one of the most intriguing books. I love to read the book of Judges because there's so much action going on. But it's also one of the most depressing books in the Bible. It's just a book about a cycle of activities that goes on. I think it's recorded something like 11 times, if I'm right, maybe less, but about 11 times. And the cycle is that God brings the people into the land, into the place he has for them. They experience a period of respite, and then they think that their respite, their success, their ease is the result of their own doing. And God has to remind them that, no, what you have that is good is because of my grace. And so what does God do? He sends an enemy to attack them. And they are oppressed by an enemy. And then some more time goes on, and then finally the Israelites, they cry out for God to deliver them. And then the cycle moves forward after God has given them a time of rest. The people fall into sin and rebellion. They cry out to God for help. God, out of his grace, sends a judge. A judge is a military, powerful individual, not a judge in the legal sense of the word, but a judge in the military sense of the word. He would bring judgment on the enemies of God through an exertion of his power, might, and strength. And he sends a judge to deliver them. And then the people experience a period of respite. And then the people think their respite is the result of their own good doing. And then God sends an enemy. And then they cry out for a deliverer. And then God sends a judge to deliver them. And then there's a period of rest. And then the people think that their rest is the result. Eleven times you read the same thing over and over again. It reminds me of me. How often 
I learned, I experienced the same things in an attempt by God to get me to learn the lesson. And I don't learn it, and the same thing goes on again. And the Lord says, you got it this time? And I say, I didn't think I might. And then, no, you don't. And, and it just keeps going round and round. And sometimes our suffering and our encounters seem very unfair. Gideon felt this way. He replied, if the Lord is with us, the angel of the Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us and put us in the hands of Midian. This is just not fair. Where's all the good stuff we've been told about that happened to Abraham? How come it doesn't happen for us? It happened for Abraham. How come it doesn't happen for us? It happened for Isaac. It happened for Jacob. It happened for Moses. Why is it that we are stuck in this conundrum and can't seem to escape the onslaught of our enemies? Have you ever felt that way? You know, God, what are you up to? I hear my friends. I hear of other people that get prayed for. They're healed. How come it doesn't happen to me? I hear of other congregations that just start, and there's a thousand people in a year. How come that doesn't happen to me? Why is it that things are not as they seem for me or us like they seem for others? And where do we go with that? We say, well, there's something not fair about this. Why do those kinds of things happen? Gideon had the same sort of expressions. Sometimes suffering is just... Difficult, I'd say impossible to explain. We'd like to explain it, but sometimes we just can't. And so in Job chapter 1, this is really wild stuff in the book of Job. You know, you have a heavenly scene in which God is placed. I'm not sure the book of Job says this, but he is, I imagine, he is placed on his throne in the heavens. And the angels present themselves before God. And among them, one like them, among them is the evil one, Satan, the adversary. That's what Satan means, adversary. And while they are present, God says to the evil one, Have you ever taken note of my servant Job? Now, I've said this before. If Job was given a glimpse of that heavenly experience, of that heavenly moment, I know exactly what he would say. And he would say, Lord, no, 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 you know, no, he's much better over there, you know, draw, draw his attention to that one over that way, you know. But God say, no, 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 that guy, Job, let me tell you something about him. He is the most faithful, blameless man in all the earth. How does one get that way? How do you become the most faithful man in all the earth? Was he really that much different than us? Well, when you read about what happens, Satan says, yeah, but he wouldn't be like that if he didn't have it so good. Don't we think like that? You know? We see people that seem to walk well with the Lord, and they're people who seem to have it all together. they got a great job. They've got a bunch of letters after their own names. They drive really nice cars, have beautiful homes. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But how often do we look at that as the measure of a person's righteousness or a person's togetherness or a person's stability? 
That's the way Satan looked at it. He said, of course he'd be like that. Because look, everything's going well for him. How can he not be that way? That makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> you know, what's there to complain about? You got your health, you got your money, you got family, you got everything going. But God knew Job's heart. And he said, that's not why he has it all together. That's the challenge of people that have much together. That their togetherness is not with regard to the things they possess, but it's with regard to the one they're connected to. And he said, even if all that stuff is taken away, Job would still be the most righteous man in all the earth. So Satan says, well, let's see. And in the first round, it's certainly true. In all these things, it says, Job did not sin against the Lord. He never raised any kinds of, I don't know what they would consist of. I try to think about it. But he didn't raise any kind of questioning about God that would render him somehow rebelling against God. And then Satan appears a second time. And he says, well, the only reason he's still faithful, he lost all that stuff, but he's still doing well. He's okay. And so he's permitted to strike him. And he's filled with boils. Later in the book of Job, it says the boils are so bad so bad that he's scraping them with potsherds, you know, pieces of pottery. And they're so bad, pus is oozing from them. They're so bad that maggots are settling in in the cuts all over his body. And yet Job does not sin against the Lord. He raises questions. He can't figure this out. And he doesn't know why it's happening. Sometimes suffering's a mystery. There's some kind of cosmic connection here. Job didn't know that there was an enemy afoot. Job didn't know that his suffering does not have any natural explanation. It's all a cosmic issue that's going on. And that the suffering is God's mechanism to demonstrate this man's faithfulness to the living God that others would trust in this God like Job. Job is becoming an example of trust in the midst of inexplicability. And so what kind of effect? Those are the things that are true about suffering. But what kind of effect do they have on us? This is quite interesting. You know, sometimes it leads many to reject God. Not just unbelievers, believers as well. And I don't mean reject necessarily in the ultimate sense, but in the sense in which we don't remain faithful like God, but we somehow exit from his presence. And we ask questions, questions are fine, but we say, how can a loving God allow this to happen? It's interesting that even avowed atheists And those who are simply disinterested in God, when they experience suffering of some kind, their immediate reaction is, how could God do this? You know, how could he allow this? Why didn't he stop it? Even though they don't have any inkling of belief in him, God is brought into their their array of struggle and strife. It's not uncommon, is it? 
to witness individuals go from indifference and denial of God almost in an instant in anger and rebellion against Him whom they don't even believe in because of the suffering that they experience. Here's the question. How do we respond to suffering that comes into our lives? Some respond by rejecting Him. Job didn't do that, though he questioned. But also, suffering leads many to God. In Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, he said, suffering plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebellious heart. This is what Messiah tells us. Blessed are those who mourn. That's what suffering is meant to bring us to. A place of mourning. And as Messiah says, it can serve the purpose of enabling us to experience God's comfort when we mourn over our inability to do anything about what we're struggling with and we must cast all our cares upon him for he does care for us. Suffering plants the flag of truth in a rebellious heart. It can turn us to, to faith. In suffering, sometimes we come to realize that we don't have all the resources to deal with our need. We don't have all the strength. We don't have all the wisdom. We don't have all the insight. We don't have all the understanding. We don't have all the skill. In short, what I think suffering can do for us is to help us realize that we are not in control and we never really were. It's God who's in control of our lives. Suffering helps us to realize that we are dependent upon Him for our very breath. Without me, Yeshua said, you can do nothing. And therefore, we are in need of Him. And so why and how does the Lord use pain and suffering in our lives? He brings it, He allows it, and in some instances brings it on to drive us to Himself. That we would look to Him to guide us, look to Him to lead us, look to Him to comfort us, because sometimes we can't find it anywhere else. Suffering can be a very lonely experience. God's intention is to bring us unto himself. And that's why Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. He wants us to come to him. So here are some ways that people came to them in their pain. Samson, what interests me, he's one of my favorite judges of all judges. Maybe because I just imagine him being over six feet and, you know, I wish I could be that way. But maybe when we meet him, he's just a little guy, you know. And, you know, who knows? Just a little guy. With real long hair. And I like that too. Right, Glenn? So in Judges 16, at the very end of Samson's life, when he is reduced to a shell of a person, when his eyes have been taken out by the Philistines, when his hair has been shaved, but now they've neglected to take note of him and his hair has grown back and the covenantal arrangement that is made between Samson and God, the Nazarite vow, is then uh, inactive, is activated once again. 
But this time, and there's a wonderful thing about Samson, this time he doesn't take his strength for granted. Before, his strength was his strength. And he would use it in any way to take revenge and for, any, for whatever reason. Sometime, one time he took a bunch of foxes, tied their tails together, put a torches to them, and set them through the fields of the Philistines just to burn it down as an act of revenge. He would use his power and strength, not in a controlled manner, but in some sense an out-of-controlled way. One time he took the gates of the city of Gaza, the gates of the city. You've ever been to Israel and you see some of the ruins of what these gates are like? They're like 10, 20 feet tall. He took these gates and picked them up and carried them 20 miles just to do that. <laughs> you know, to make the Philistines an open prey to their enemies so that the gates couldn't protect them. But now, for the first time, perhaps... He uses his strength and power in a controlled way, in a godly way, though a judgmental way. And he does so not out of just a cavalier sense or in a sense in which he says, this is my strength, I can do what I want. No, he says to God, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more. You never hear that of Samson. Samson always had the long hair. He was faithful to the vow. Yeah, I have the strength. I'm going to use it as I want. we got to be very careful with the things God gives us, especially the spiritual gifts he entrusts to us. We can take them for granted and think that they are something we possess or earn. But they are something that God has given to us and granted us. And it's purely by his grace. And he says, let me just one more time destroy the enemies of Israel. And God answers him in his prayer. His suffering drove him to God, not away from him. And what a way to suffer. It can serve to deepen our devotion to God. Think of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And I'm running a little bit out of time, so I'm going to move quickly here. You can read the passage. But this is what I love about them, where he says, if we are thrown into the furnace... The God we say serve is able to save us. They have this sense of faith and hope he'll deliver. And he says he will rescue us out of your hands. But I love this. But even if he does not, these guys are not presumptuous. These are not guys that say, listen, I prayed. It's done. I don't have to think about it. There were guys that said, you know, I, we may be wrong on this. He just may not heal us. He just may not take us out of the fiery furnace. We cannot presume upon what God will do. And these were men who were with the prophet of Israel, Daniel. We need to be a people of deeper devotion to God. And the thing that this says is that their devotion was not in what God would do for them. It was a devotion in God no matter what God would or would not do for them. Suffering can drive you to that, but oftentimes it doesn't. It drives us to expect him to do for us, but not these guys who are facing the fiery furnace. Their devotion was to God no matter what would happen. We may not be happy, but they're devoted to God and to his purpose. We may not come out of this alive, but we're not going to bow down to your gods. We're going to be faithful to you, O Lord. 
suffering can drive us to be deeper in our devotion to God. It can also develop humility. It ought to develop humility, but very often it develops a more of a conceited resistance and arrogance. Who is God not to hear my prayer? Who is God not to deliver me? But look at Paul. He said, to keep me from becoming conceited. Think about that. Here's the apostle of apostles. And he knew his weakness. I wouldn't think of him that way. But he's the theologian of the new covenant. And he knew his weakness. I could become very prideful with the gifts God has given me. And to keep him from being prideful because of the surpassing great revelations that were given to him. There was given me a thorn in my flesh. Look at this. A messenger of Satan. Is that not, is that not like Job? And get this. Not just to wound me, to hurt me, to harm me, but to torment me. I don't think of Paul being tormented, but yet he says he was. And three times he pleaded with the Lord, ongoingly, take this away. And look what God says. My grace is sufficient. It will cause you, Paul, to be humble, not conceited. It will cause you to be gentle, not prideful, arrogant, or harmful toward others. He said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Messiah's power may rest in me. This is amazing. That is why for Messiah's sake, I delight in weakness. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. For when I am weak, then am I truly strong. Suffering can have this effect of causing us to be more gentle, more humble, more devoted, more dependent. So the question is, how will it affect you and me? I couldn't help but think about this. The two thieves on the cross, the two criminals, they're in the very same place as each other. One's on the right, one's on the left. Both of them are witnessing the most important powerful, miraculous moment in all of history. They had a front row seat to the greatest miracle of all. The Messiah of Israel is bearing the sin of the world from the beginning of time, Adam and Eve, to the very end of time. There he is on the cross, and these two thieves are right next to him. In one sense, you know, you want to say, I wish I was there, <laughs> you know, knowing what's going on. They didn't really know, at least not initially. But one of them did. In the midst of the same suffering and anguish as each other, maybe a little different than Messiah, not a little, a lot different in the sense that he was suffering eternal separation from God, although suffering the same kind of physical abuse as as each other, as the others. One of them, in the midst of his suffering, is driven to resent God. And he says, if you're the Messiah, why don't you come down from there? He's on the cross. And rather than the suffering to work humility and compassion, even to a fellow sufferer, he's mocking him from the cross in the midst of his own anguish. 
You would think he would at least save his strength for the next upride so he could take a breath. But no, it says the rebuke, don't, that he hurled insults at him. But the other one says, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. I think one of the ways that suffering can have a positive effect is when we get away from saying, I don't deserve this. This man was saying, and I don't think he was just talking about his criminal activities. He was talking about who he was, who he is as a person. We are worthy of such judgment and worse because of our offense against God. Don't you fear God? This will appear as nothing compared to the alienation we will experience, the torment we will experience when we are separated from God for all of eternity. Don't you fear God? And doesn't this moment drive you to fear him rather than insult him? And what does it cause the person to do? He reaches out to Yeshua and he says, Remember me. Humility. Remember me. A sense of need. Remember me. A sense of undeserving grace. Just remember me. He doesn't say, get me off of this. You won't save yourself. Save me. But he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Yeshua respond? I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. How will suffering affect us? Will it drive us to Messiah like this man? Will we hear the voice of Messiah and have the same hope? Today you will be with me in paradise. This will not last forever. Will it cause us to cry out to God for his strength? Will it lead us to become more gentle of heart? In short, Will we allow it to bring us to God or to lead us further away? Those are really the only two options that we have. Either we come to him or we'll find ourselves somehow distanced from him. And if we come to him, I think we'll hear those words, maybe not as outwardly as we would like, but internally in the depths of our heart. You will be with me in paradise. This is not the end of the story. It's only a pathway to the final chapters. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness, and your grace. Suffering is a scary thing to endure, as you know and you know firsthand. And yet Messiah himself learned obedience by the things he suffered. May we, Father, 
learn gentleness. May we learn humility. May we learn dependency. May we learn that you are indeed in in control and we are not. May we learn, Father, that you are the one who will ultimately deliver us. And so may we run to you with our hurts, run to you with our disappointments, run to you to leave them at your feet and to be strengthened in the midst of them. And sometimes, Lord, you deliver us from them completely. We praise you when you do. But sometimes, Father, they are burdens that we are to bear in testimony that we will be faithful despite the difficulties that swirl around us. So, Father, strengthen our hearts. Help us become the kinds of people that you would have us to be. Use our trials and tribulations for your good purpose that we would ultimately glorify you through them. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.